Hey, it's Lisa Wimberger here. I'm the founder of Neurosculpting and I have helped thousands of people learn really powerful tools to regulate their minds and their bodies, including pro athletes, entrepreneurs, and those with serious stress-based illnesses. So I'm really excited to help you do the very same thing through education and some incredible guest experts. And together, we're going to discover the formula to unlock hope. So welcome. I'm really, really happy to have Dr. Ben Ryan with us today. Um, it's, this is going to be a really exciting conversation. Dr. Ben Ryan is a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University and um, a science communicator on social media. He focuses on exploring the neural basis of empathy and something I'm very interested in, he's exploring the mechanisms by which empathic behaviors can actually be enhanced. He has lots of published research out there. I've been geeking out on some of it, and I'm really excited to have you with us today, Ben. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited. I, I can already tell this is going to be an exciting conversation. Yay. Um, okay, so I have a million neuroscience questions, but before that, um, I feel like you're a new breed of scientist in that you are kind of at the forefront of using social media to disseminate really digestible, important information. And um, I don't know that social media influencer and scientists have gone hand in hand, um, but I'm curious two things that I'd love to jump in on. One, why neuroscience? And two, why social media? Well, first, thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I I would agree that I am at a very unique intersection between science and social media. There really are not too many scientists on social media, you know, doing education. Of course, I'm sure scientists have a personal Instagram or something like that, but not too many using these platforms to reach the public. Um, I'll start with answering the first question, why neuroscience? So it's actually kind of funny because both of the answers to those questions are very sort of unintentional. Um, mm -hmm. I was a student in psychology in undergrad because I was interested in, in human behavior. I was interested in why people made the decisions that they did. And if we could sort of classify behaviors, we could better understand humanity. Did this and come I from you trying to understand yourself at all? Um, I was no, I was actually trying to understand others. So Great. I was interested in social behavior and I, and I still am now. That's what I study. Um, but I, I, I thought it was interesting because, you know, in high school I was, uh, this is kind of embarrassing to say out loud, but I was one of the popular <laughs> kids. Okay. And, and so there was lucky you, <laughs> I know. And, and it's, uh, I hate that I just said that, but, um, but it's like, the reason I'm saying that is because you, you get this kind of view of like your whole high school right and so you see there's the popular kids and and then there's the the kids who like want to hang out with the popular kids and then there's the uh like unpopular kids and then the sort of like don't really care where they fit in and and you just sort of like I, I have a vision of sitting in my high school cafeteria and looking around and just thinking about how interesting it was that some groups naturally coalesce with with 20 or 30 people all talking loudly you know very social and then you have other groups where it's a few people and they're sitting quietly and they're having a tea. And then you have other other students who are in the cafeteria, but they're sitting alone and they're reading mm. a book, you know, and, and it's just I thought it was so interesting that in you take any sample of people and you can see this very broad spectrum of social expression and social and interest in social behavior. And those those changes or those differences they all reflect differences in how the brain's functioning because social behavior is such a complex phenomenon for the brain to regulate. So and would you just, say there's state change from one group to the other? If you could look at their brains, would there actually be a state change or just different circuitry working? So I would say that in general, if, if you're engaging in a social interaction, probably regardless of whether you're, um, you know, extroverted, introverted, you're enjoying the conversation or you don't really want to be in it. Generally, the brain state, or and what I mean by that is like the pattern of activity that you would observe is probably the same mm -hmm. or very similar, at least, 
Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, if you're sitting alone, it's probably very similar. But I think that the minor differences that probably underlie those those two people is like the the engagement of the reward circuitry that uh-huh. some people are are enjoying it. You know, they're getting pleasure from it. Others are not. Um, and so the, you know, this reward circuitry that sort of guides your behavior and shifts, oh, well, what do I want to do right now? Do I want to go talk to those people or do I want to go sit on my phone, play a game or go on Twitter or something? Um, those decisions will be influenced by how your reward circuitry is engaged during those interactions, I think. Um, so, yeah, so I was interested in in this. And I so I went to school for psychology and I ended up... Um, I guess there's a long version of this story and a short version. I'll give you the, the short version. I was in my second to last year and I had a like unbelievably terrifying nightmare that woke me up. And um, as soon as, you know, it was one of those where you wake up and you are alarmed, right? Like you are just like, I could sprint for five miles straight. No problem. And you just wake up and you're electrified, right? It's wow. so scary. And so I had no choice really, but to sit there and think, um, because I couldn't fall back asleep. And I spent a lot of time thinking about my experience and what could have possibly led me there. You know, how in the world it was possible that I was fully immersed in a, you know, in, entirely realistic experience. There's sounds, there's sensations, you know, being like touched by stuff. There's, I could feel everything. I could see everything. Mm. I could hear everything. And it was everything I was afraid of. But the amazing thing was wow. that everything I was interacting with was also generated by my brain. So I was experiencing the sensation of being in a place and my brain was generating my surroundings. And I had no awareness that my brain could be doing both at the same time. My brain was doing both. It's like a recursive metaverse. You're in it (laughs) and you're creating it by being in it. Yeah. Very metaphysical. Yeah. And I mean, and and we do it every night, right? This is dreaming. Um, it's amazing. I'm 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 very interested in dreams, but and this is what led me into neuroscience. So I woke up and and I thought, you know, I we have this unbelievably powerful organ just hanging out in our heads, all of us, and I want to know a little bit more about how it's doing the things it's doing because you know if it's if it's powerful enough to shape these metaphysical states, you know, like these amazing dreamscapes, then I want to know the type of power that's going into making those social decisions that you can observe mm. anywhere you go. And so I changed my my major um, and my focus into neuroscience. And a couple of years later, I ended up landing in a in my PhD studying autism. And I and I actually never really put it together until a few years years after I joined the lab that I was studying social behavior and I was yes. studying those completely, natural completely with autism. Yeah, or the lack thereof, right? The lack of social connection. Right, exactly. And and that's why I really enjoyed my PhD research because, you know, studying autism is a great way to explore the neural circuits that underlie social behavior in general, right? Because you're looking at a case of there's some sort of, you know, change in the way that social behavior is expressed or social behaviors are, are controlled. Um, and that allows you to really see like, okay, so what systems are different? What systems are, are functioning differently? And I, I had a great time. What's interesting to me, this goes to the same thing about your dream where you are in the dreamscape, experiencing it, yet creating it at the same time. And I imagine social behavior is doing the same thing where we have internal circuitry driving us towards or away from it. And that engagement, then the actual social milieu then feeds back and influences the way we regulate. And so I feel like it's 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 a bit of the same thing, right? Because the more we can create positive social connection, the more in theory, right, regulated and brain protective that that is. And yet that exact experience has the capacity to dysregulate us even as we're trying to create it. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm I'm very curious about uh you know, can you digestibly explain the brain circuits involved in empathy and really what is the importance of empathy in our future in as individuals and humanity big question yeah (laughs) so well let me start by doing a a fun little exercise i'm going to become the interviewer for a second i want to ask you a question great um because everyone seems to have a little bit of a different answer to this how would you define empathy 
For me, empathy is the capacity to do any of the above. Witness, recognize, acknowledge, understand, feel into it or approximate someone else's state or experience or feelings or perspective. I applaud that definition. That was oh, a fantastic great. definition. Um, that, yeah, that put you me know, in the hot seat. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's, no, it's um, good. It's good. <laughs> no, it, because a lot of people de define empathy as, you know, like helping someone else or um, going out of your way to, to take care of someone when they're sick or something like that, um, which is also, you know, falls within empathy. But the, the empathy itself is really exactly what you said. It's the ability to identify what someone else's state is and sort of embody that state yourself to it's like theory of mind you know what's this person experiencing you can step into their shoes and recognize oh that's a bad experience you know maybe i should help them mm -hmm. or that's a great experience you know i feel i feel happy for them or i'm jealous of them um it's just it's really the ability to to occupy someone else's shoes i almost feel like um maybe the answer a lot of people give is they're giving a definition of compassion when in fact compassion is a behavioral expression of the neural circuitry of empathy that's how i view it absolutely i would 100 percent agree yeah so so now we know right how important it is to have an understanding of someone else's perspective so that it could lead to compassionate acts um, mm -hmm. or self-protective acts i would imagine if you are able to empathize with someone and realize they're volatile or they're in a trauma response and they're not really present you don't you might need to be self-protective. Where do you see that? What's the importance of that in the future of our world, our humanity, our politics? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? You know, I think that recently it seems like we've experienced a a down regulation of empathy. You know, it seems like people interact in increasingly uh inconsiderate ways you know a lack of consideration for the other person's state whether it's you know through more increasingly hostile political political debates um increasingly hostile social media engagements and interactions um or just outright division over all sorts of topics um you know i think it's critical i think empathy is is really critical for for the advancement of the human race. I mean, maybe that's a massive broad statement, but it, it's important. I don't know. We're social creatures. We have a prefrontal cortex for a reason. So I feel like, yeah, we are we are designed for that. Um, I'm I'm curious if if and I'm making a leap here, if empathy is an internal design capacity that all humans have. And I don't know if that's true, but I'm just saying um, why are we going? Why is it a natural easier default to go in the opposite direction of division divisiveness and fear and i, I that's going to also lead into why you're on social media but yeah um so there are some people who do not ex experience empathy um is that so, considered an anomaly or is so yeah generally um what we would consider psychopaths you know those who yeah. do not you know do not identify with a fear state or a, a distressed state of someone else. Um, so yes, it is considered an anomaly. Um, but generally, most people do experience empathy. And, I, and let's take a quick detour, because I think this is a really interesting topic is why, why experience empathy? You know, what's mm -hmm. the purpose? Mm -hmm. um, I think, looking through an evolutionary lens of everything we do, it has some sort of benefit to our survival fitness. Empathy makes perfect sense. Because if you can see you know, hey, my friend here um, ate some berries and now she's really, really sick. I should probably, you know, if I can't identify that she's sick, then I'm in trouble if I eat those berries too. So it's just evolutionary fitness to recognizing that someone else is in trouble. But why help? You know, why why feel the, the pressure to save someone else? And um, I recently did a TikTok video on this. There's something called the perception action model where there's evidence for this, where basically when you see someone else experiencing a, a distressed state, let's focus on, or a pain state, you're, there's actually plenty of studies showing that your brain sort of mimics the activity pattern of that state. So if someone's in pain, 
and you're watching them, the parts of the brain that are activated when you're experiencing pain are partially activated in, in you, the observer. And these are the mirror neuron networks. Is that we, we think so. I mean, okay. well, some you know there are there are hypotheses there are hypotheses about about that whether mirror neurons are involved, but no direct evidence yet. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's something going on for sure, right? Because there has to be some sort of of system to regulate that to mimic or imitate the other person's experience. So so the question here is like, why would you help the other person? Well, if you're watching someone else experience suffering and you are in your brain is mimicking that brain state, then you are there, therefore experiencing suffering. And so there's this question or this hypothesis that maybe empathy is actually a selfish mechanism to relieve yourself of the pain that you are suffering from watching someone else in pain. Oh, that's fascinating. Nothing is altruistic, I guess, huh? Yes, exactly. Wow. But is that even a bad thing? I mean, if if acting in self-service is also acting for the greater good, then this is this is getting very spiritual, which is I am you and you are me. Mm -hmm. And so how is that? A, you know, I'm sure people might think that's a bad thing to have the unfolding of empathy be the, at the root of, you know, self-service. But is it bad? Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, if the outward measurable behavior is that they're helping someone else, who cares how it, you know, what motivates it, I suppose. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I'm in sort of the thing about this is it's kind of tough to find an example that doesn't fit into that, you know, mm. when you are walking on the street, and you see someone who's homeless, and you give them a $10 bill, you know, are you really just doing something out of the kindness of your heart? Or do you see this person and think, oh, you know, to be in that position would be so tough. Let me do a little something to help them, you know. It, and the truth hard. is you're probably going to get a boost in your reward circuitry. So you are going to absolutely get a benefit exactly. from that act. Right. And then there's another part to this. I mean, now picture that same scenario, but let's say it's me and let's say I'm walking with my wife and she, and I think mm, I could probably score some points with my wife right now. She can think <laughs> I'm really cool if I give this homeless person $20, you know, there's that. There's the social benefit uh, as well of of kindness, you know, and yes. um, so it's, I'd like to think that altruism exists. I mean, and of, and of course, it does exist, because you can, you can, I, I could choose to do something kind right now. I mean, I could go on a website and donate $1,000 to a charity. Um, and that is directly impacting me in a negative way, where now I just lost $1,000, but it's helping someone else. Um, and there's no pressure, right? So altruism does exist, you can, you can demonstrate that it exists. But um, but, but yeah, you're still whether... going to get the reward circuitry, give you a little bit of a charitable dopamine. Yay. So it's still <laughs> right. going to feel good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's kind of the distinction there is if you can do something that makes you feel bad, but makes someone else feel good. Interesting. But I would even argue that because I, I take to mind the idea of the martyr, right? Growing up with... Uh, certain people in my family who acted the martyr role and would sacrifice their comfort and convenience for the sake of others. Um, even in that, there was some weird reward that they could then say and advertise, I'm a martyr. And there's mm -hmm. an attachment to that identity, which gives them a sense of consistency and comfort and predictability of this is who I am. So I would even argue that people who help even at their own sacrifice could possibly be getting a reward from it. I mean, that's probably not going to be a popular thing that I just said, but <laughs> I said, no, it. but it's a good point. It's a great, it's a very good point. Yeah. Um, well, um, so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to take this into a, an interesting, very different direction. Um, animals display empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and for a while it was thought that, that animals, you know, do not display compassion or empathy or generosity. Um, there was a, a recent, paper that came out where they trained, I think it was mice, it might've been rats, but it was mice or rats to, they had two ports, like little holes where they could poke their nose. You know, it's like a nose poke task. It's very common in, in mouse research. So they poke their nose and then they get something typically. And so if they post, if they poke their nose into one port, they would get a food reward. But if they poke their nose into a second port, they would get a food reward and a mouse on the other side of a wall would also get a food reward. And they knew that the mouse was getting a food reward. And what they found was that they stopped the port, they closed the port that would only benefit them. 
And then when they nose poked the second, the remaining port, they wouldn't get a food reward, but the mouse on the other side of the wall would. And they found that the mice continued to nose poke just, just because, just to give wow. their friend a reward. And they only did it if they knew the mouse on the other side, if they were, <gasps> if they were cage mates with that mouse. Oh my goodness. Okay. So Isn't that this interesting? just blows my mind because now this goes to what is us and them. And I, yes. uh, okay. So I'm so excited. Wait, I got to rein myself in here. Okay. <laughs> does this there's a fine line between becoming the us and helping each other and creating a them and a divide and a, and 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 then a foe mm -hmm. and i am guessing empathy is a slippery slope kind of like and, and forgive my ignorance here some of the research i've read research papers i've read on bonding and oxytocin where you know just a little too much is pretty pretty bad uh in terms of uh social inclusion and even things like aggression and racism so i'm guessing empathy could even go in that direction where there's so much identification with us but then there's a them I, are you seeing that totally yeah i think and going back to you know the part of my dog might be barking a little bit um she's a wild one um yeah going back to the discussion on division and current you know the sort of current societal state of empathy there's so much in grouping and outgrouping you know you can you can outgroup someone on the basis of a number of things their political affiliation their nationality you know their sex their sexuality there's so many ways nowadays that people tend to outgroup others and as soon as that occurs there's a there seems to be a complete loss of empathy and and it's so it's so problematic right because we're we are we are sort of built to be tribal right we support those in our tribe we help our group because why would you help the other group maybe they'll attack us um you know again thinking evolutionarily and it's it's just so problematic for us for someone to dismiss another person's emotional state or physical state you know state of suffering potentially just because they don't identify with something about that person and i think that's what we're starting to see I'm really curious. You just made me think of, okay, so when I think of like dopaminergic addiction, like gambling, and there's that, you know, that anticipatory spike that actually can be even higher than the actual win. But then there's that come down, which doesn't feel like we're going back to neutral. It feels like a loss. I'm curious if the down regulation of empathy do, does that feel neutral or does that go into the perception of a deficit which may translate into uh aggression or uh, i don't know i mean what does the loss of empathy feel like yeah i mean i guess it's an interesting question of what is the inverse of empathy is right. it aggression is it apathy um, is it cruelty Maybe, I, I, yeah, maybe it's like a, a form, like a sort of um, like vengeful behavior. Like you see someone hurt and you and you allow it to happen. Right. Um, so I guess the, I'm going to ask a question about uh, psychopaths. And not all psychopaths are vengeful, violent, cruel people. So but 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 being a psychopath is a marked lack of empathy. So I'm, I'm wondering what does a psychopath feel i love the questions you're asking they're great questions um yeah so and that and that actually is the perfect question to ask because that does sort of get at the the question of what is the inverse of empathy right or what is the lack um and in that case it would be apathy it's it's just sort right. of you know neutrality right? right you see someone hurt and i'm unaffected by it right. i don't really care not that i'm a psychopath I have no, but... i'm not a stakeholder in that <laughs> yeah yeah so um but but sometimes it seems like there's like some take advantage of that that ability right yeah. to to inflict pain onto others mm. um, and feel no consequence or maybe some feel a benefit some feel pleasure from it but right. um to be honest that's a that's a field that i'm not truly well versed in 
Um, so I'd be cautious about making any strong claims myself. Yeah, yeah I understand. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious to lead into uh, your experience with social media because you're not just using social media to educate. You're actually studying the way social media divides. So in your education, I am guessing there is embedded uh, transmission of unification somehow because you're you're actually forging as an influencer in a field and against the momentum of the field so what's your experience with social media what what should we be wary of yeah so to to start um going back to your original question of how i got into social media it was, it was essentially an accident. I had never intended to do social media or be an influencer or creator, whatever you want to call me. Um, but what happened was it was the very beginning of the pandemic and I was familiar with wearing a you know surgical mask that now everyone has seen and worn. Um, and I went to Walmart and nobody was wearing their masks properly because the general public had, you know, unless you were a nurse or, you know, some sort of medical professional, or maybe a scientist, you've, you've never worn one of these. And so nobody was really wearing them. Right. So I went home and I thought I'm going to film a video to post on my, my Facebook and Instagram, just for my friends and family, just explaining how to wear one. Mm. And that day, fatefully, I chose to film myself using this new app, TikTok that I had downloaded. And the only way to save the video was to post it. So I uploaded it down, you know, therefore downloaded it and then posted on Facebook and said, Hey, friends and family, just check it out. Here's a video for how to wear a mask. And the video ended up getting like 1.6 million views on TikTok. It just, it just blew up. And I, I immediately felt the impact of that, of 1.6 million people who may now better understand how to wear a mask and may therefore, you know, I may, I may have had a tiny little bit of an impact on mitigating the transmission of COVID in the early stages, you know, and the the feeling that holy cow you know these platforms can be used to really transmit broadly time timely and potentially really important information um it just like dawned on me and it took mm. a while actually but i so yeah i decided to keep posting and answering questions about the brain and stuff and at first it was just kind of fun it was a little hobby and then as as i continued to use it i really developed that understanding that like this is not just a side hobby this is a tool and this is an entirely new avenue and um and yeah i've learned a lot so i mean there's a lot of directions i could go with this but probably the most pertinent thing that i'd like to share is that for i've learned that for every single comment or stance that you can make or take on the internet there is always a group of people who stand opposed to you and who are willing to go to extreme lengths to prove to you that they are right and you are wrong. And <laughs> I'm if you just because I experience this all the time. And yeah, and the sad part is I'm sure most people have experienced it. You know, I at one point I actually did a poll of my followers and, and I just asked, you know, have you ever been harassed or bullied online? And I think like 85% said yes. And it's it's awful. I mean, people are just really harsh and critical and um what's the it's, behavioral it's... drive for that? That question is exactly what I'm interested in studying. It's it's something that I I hope and I hope no one listening to this is a neuroscientist and says, oh, I'm going to do that. But I, <laughs> I hope that I'm uniquely positioned to study this specific thing, sort of the neuroscience of social media. Yeah. Just call dibs. That, that works. Yeah. It worked as a kid. So you called it's, dibs on it. <laughs> dibs, everyone. Please okay. don't do it. It's mine. <laughs> um, but maybe the one thing that would help me is I have, you know, I have many hypotheses about, about sort of how what's happening, what's going on. And of course it does relate to the, my research on empathy. And so I have an example of this that I think is really telling. And when I give, when I give like PowerPoint presentations, I actually show this video. Um, there was a, I posted a video and there was a college student and she made a video replying to my video. So she showed a, a few seconds of mine. And then she basically just said, you know, I don't like this video. I don't like this guy. He cherry picks evidence. Um, and it just sort of progressively gets worse and worse and more <laughs> hostile where by the end of it, she's like, he's a narcissist and everybody knows that he likes the blue check mark. And then it just like cuts off abruptly. And it's kind of, it's actually really funny. But when I saw it, I, you know, it hurts. It hurts to see yeah. someone I've never met, someone who knows nothing about me, just brutally criticizing me. Right. And I, commented on it and I just said something like wow like you're really coming for me like I'm sorry you know didn't mean to offend you and 
it was it was pretty astounding because the video was so hostile and then as soon as she saw my comment it was like she left like a series of comments they're like i'm so sorry i didn't think you would see this like i was just in a bad mood i had a bunch of exams and i was grumpy and this and that and then she also messaged me on instagram with like a full page length and so i have a powerpoint slide where i show like the progression of this where it was just like i'm so sorry i didn't mean to hurt your feelings i didn't think you'd see it and it was just so interesting to me because it's it's a beautiful example of the sort of dissociation from a human being where she yeah she was a she was a good person. The fact that she went and apologized showed me that she, you know, she felt compassion. She felt empathy. She felt, she felt bad. And so the fact that she sees my video and she thinks I'm just going to let loose on this guy and just say anything bad about him. It doesn't matter. And then as soon as I, I become a real person that engages with it, suddenly there's this deep sense of compassion and she just becomes very apologetic. And I yeah. think it's a great example of this is see. the crazy part of the internet because I mean now that we've moved into video it's better because we still get like social inputs like like tone of voice and and facial expression but without the video we've got just raw posts lacking any social input that our entire nervous system is oriented to want and need in order to understand the nature and the intent of the interaction. And that's gone. We don't see each other as humans on the internet. And amazing case in point that you that you just had, the moment you're a human to her, it's a different ball game. And so does the metaverse potentially help ameliorate that because we're interacting i don't know like i don't even know where the metaverse is going to go with with all of yeah. this it could it could be a rehumanizing of the digital world or it could be a further dissociation i do you have thoughts yeah, on that i do i my <laughs> hypothesis is that um have you ever seen a video or maybe you've seen it in real life where you have two dogs on opposite sides of a fence and they're barking and they're you know they're snarling and their teeth are out and stuff and then you open the fence door and they're like they just like yeah, trot yeah, in yeah. and snip each other it's like something about when they're on the opposing sides of the fence there's no true threat of violence right and so there's it's easy for the brain to unleash this anger and, and hostility and and it's the same kind of thing on social media you know it, and you see it all the time too another example of this is you know, you're talking to a friend and you're like, oh, I can't believe what Mark did. You know, that was horrible. Like if I see him, I'm just going to tell him how I feel. And then you see Mark and you're like, oh, hey, Mark, how you doing? You know, and <laughs> it's it's like there's a, it's easy to to express anger until there's an actual potentially a threat of of damage. Right. Maybe this is also an evolutionary thing where maybe Mark is going to throw a punch if you if you call him out and on social media, there's no threat of backlash. You know, there's no, um, mm. there's no tangible uh, consequence in the three dimensional world, at least up front, there isn't. Exactly. And so I, I don't think the metaverse would fix it. I, I don't necessarily think that the problem is um, like the social cues associated with like seeing a person, seeing an avatar, and they're talking to you. I think it might make people friendlier in general, because there's mm -hmm. a, there's more of a a live interaction, mm -hmm. but it it certainly won't stop people from screaming at each other. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of like uh, Call of Duty lobbies or anything like video game lobbies. People are just horrible. They say yeah. terrible things and they yell at each other and they use slurs and it's it's like notoriously an awful place. And it's it's just really too bad. I mean, I think something there's something really interesting to study there neuroscientifically, and I hope to I hope to get at that. My inter, I always view neuroscience and any science really through the lens of um, it always sort of converts into spirituality for me. And I'm, I, I'm not saying it should for other people, but for me, it does. And so when I think of what's the brain doing when um, when we have permission and lack of consequences, what's the brain doing to like drive us towards aggressive behavior, all those things, right? For me, it comes down to because I do get some of those little hate comments. Um, if I feel like I'm enough, do I then need to make other people wrong? Or can I give them the space to be who they are? Because I feel like I'm enough. And when I don't feel like I'm enough, if someone's perspective is bumping against that, 
then I come out with a threat response. And so I always convert it into how it feels in my body. And when I don't feel like I'm enough, I'm a nasty judgmental person internally and sometimes it slips out of my mouth as well. When I feel like I'm enough, I have so much more uh, resourced compassion and empathy. So somewhere in this whole neuroscience equation be, is the um, participation of an identity story that may not be the sum total reason for the circuitry doing what it does, but it's a player in either the expression of that circuitry or the modulation of that circuitry. I'm curious, I'm curious what you feel about this I'm enough concept. Totally. I think so my my content that I share is all educational, right? And I think another sort of way of uh like defining what you're saying is a sense of vulnerability. And when I share a video that is not my specific research topic, right? This isn't something I've done a PhD in. I know really well. I read a paper, I made a video about it. And someone comments, no, you're wrong, or this is the, the wrong interpretation of the results, or someone calls me out pretty much. I immediately become very anxious and, and I become much more likely to engage because I feel vulnerable. I feel like there's a lack of confidence in my understanding of the, of the material. And I think that um, that's a different form of expressing that full sort of vulnerability. But for everyone, it's different, you know, or maybe maybe you post a picture in a bathing suit and someone says something about your body and it's something that you're, um, you know, sensitive to. It's I, th I really do think it's sort of this. This, you know, sense of vulnerability and, and sensitivity that causes a lot of the, you know, conflict that we engage in on social media and not to move into a different direction, but my, my number one thing that I would like everyone to know is that if anyone ever comments something mean that does make you feel bad or doesn't either way, if they're mean and you feel any impulse to reply, don't reply. I, I have learned this, um, the hard way that the more you engage in conflict, the worse it gets because First off, it's terrible for your psyche. I found that if someone comments something and I reply, I close the app, I go back to doing some other work and I'm like, mm, I wonder if they replied yet. <laughs> I <laughs> so might have to go check. Isn't it a bit of an addiction too? And how difficult it is to overcome an addiction uh, when that impulse arises, but it almost becomes addictive to, to why, why is that so addictive when the 5,000 other comments were like, yay, thank you for this video. Yes, exactly. Right. You tend to focus on the negative comments. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. And it, it just, it seems to occupy so much more real estate in your mind. You know, you're thinking about, I wonder who this person is. I wonder if, you know, do I know them or are they a random person? Do you and think it's an evolutionary trait where the one potential adversary was the thing we had to watch so we could devise protective strategies? I mean, is it a relic of that? And I now- we're actually looking for it because we have nothing really to protect ourselves against environmentally. I mean, okay, big things, yes. Cataclysms, yes. But the day-to-day, -day, I mean, we have air conditioning, we have heat, we have indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. um, I almost feel like this this genetic, this evolutionary trait has nowhere to go, but now it funnels itself into these opportunities to like nitpick each other. Yeah, that's an interesting an interesting theory. I mean, absolutely, uh, threat has always been more important than, you know, warmth, right? And and so there's an aliveness I think that we can feel. I mean, we all know how adrenaline feels, and I know that when I get those those comments on social media, I do get a flush, I get hot, and it feels alive, and you're like ready to go. So there is an aliveness that plays into this, this aggressive, I think, uh, attacking of each other, I, I feel like. Yeah, well, so here's an interesting potential question. Um, after that rush subsides and, you know, the argument's over and it's the next day, then how do you feel about it? Really annoyed that I allocated all of that time and energy and feel like, it, feel like now I'm at a deficit. Um, and yeah. then sometimes, and I don't know if you notice this, sometimes then it bleeds into 
Do I then overcompensate next time, next post, next video to sort of level out the scales of, yeah, yeah. do you feel that? Do you Of the reputational scales? Yes. The, the ethical or morality scales? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot to it. You know, I think one, for one, it's public, right? You're, you're engaging in these discussions or maybe arguments on a public platform where everyone can see it. Um, so you may feel that social pressure to sort of tip the scales back in favor of, of a positive attitude. Um, but I definitely feel annoyed just like you of, oh, I wish I didn't spend all that time. And and I feel aggravated that, you know, that definitely influenced my other, per, you know, the way I engage in other tasks. Um, and I often feel shame. I often feel mm -hmm. shameful about, about having done that and having, you know, fought with someone else on the internet and having created an enemy, even if it's some, even if it's an anonymous person somewhere on mm -hmm. the internet. Um, but it kind of reminds me of, you know, going back to what you're saying about like that dip, right? That dopamine dip after uh, obtaining a reward. But I think in this, in this case, you know, it's conflict with, without meaningful resolution is not evolutionarily beneficial, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's just a distraction. And, um, and that's what it's always going to be on social media. You're never going to have a meaningful discussion. You know, you're, if someone comments something that they disagree with you, you're never, ever, ever going to enlighten them. Even if your points are better than theirs and are very clear, you're never going to win because people are stubborn and they don't like to admit that they're wrong. And that's very fine, true. but very just true. don't, don't engage. It's, don't it's engage. much better if you don't. I'm taking that as the number one tip of the day for me. Um, so <laughs> I know we're like, we're coming to the close of our time and I have two two questions for you. The first is, what are you working on that you're most excited about right now? Right now, as in like today or right now, as in like my life? Your life. They'd be different answers. Yeah. Um, so this is like partially confidential, but I will kind of like declassify it in a way. You um, do know this is a podcast that people are watching. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Okay, well, go ahead. I... Um, I, wow, this could be a really lengthy answer. Basically, I don't know what exactly, how exactly I want to spend my life. Um, for a long time, I've been interested in just doing a traditional academic role, right? Being a professor, running a research lab. And then I stumbled into social media and I felt that impact that I described. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this could really be a valuable and powerful tool. And I've been trying to think of ways that I can sort of achieve both because mm -hmm. I find both very satisfying and, and fun. So what I've been thinking about doing is trying to develop sort of an academic center um, that would focus on social media and, and science communication and, you know, train students to convey their research to the public, you know, to translate scientific jargon into lay terms. And mm, it's the bridge. And also, yeah, and, and also potentially do some research on this type of stuff like I was talking about um, while maintaining a, a neuroscience career, you know, re research lab and teaching neuroscience and stuff. And so it's it turns out it's very difficult to um, just sort of reach out to a university and say, hey, how about building a big old center? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a sort of a project of mine right now. And so it's something I'm very excited about. I feel like it's a really important bridge. I feel like all the, you know, Coursera's and the MOOCs out there were like the first phase of the bridge building. And now with more immediate instant gratification and mastery of the social media, I feel like that's where we're, we have to go. It's where we have yeah. to go because the nature of academic institutions are changing. People aren't showing up in person. They're doing things online and people are Googling, you know, Google Scholar and getting getting research done there. And I feel like, I don't know, I get really excited when I hear you talk about that. So well, I'm going to put it out there that I, I hope that happens. Um, okay. Two things our listeners can do to enhance empathy. So I will say the research that I'm doing now, um, I also can't talk in great detail about it, but I, all I will say is that what, what I'm doing is basically using um, 
pharmacological agents, drugs, one might say, to enhance certain brain systems to enhance empathy. And so we're trying to figure out through that, like which brain systems regulate empathy and the, mm -hmm. therefore which brain systems could be targeted. Um, so the only real answer I can give right now that I know for sure would be a drug answer. And I'm not going to give that answer <laughs> because right, right. we're really using it as more of a mechanistic tool. But I think just in general, you know, as a sort of human answer, um, you know, as we've discussed, I think try to first off when you're on social media, for one, try to, you know, avoid hostility, try to, try to think about, um, right now we're all going through kind of a bad time. It's sort of a, a bad time to exist. I would think, uh, it feels like it at least. And so I think it's really interesting that we're all connected through social media for the first time ever, you know, and, and because of that, you might think that there's greater communication and greater understanding and maybe peace, but there's not, there's the, we're seeing the exact opposite of that. And I think that's really fascinating and unfortunate, you know, that people use this, this vast accessibility of everyone to create division and, and fight each other. And so I think, especially right now, when we're all living in a pretty challenging time, I think we should probably try to emphasize kindness and be more nice to each other in general. Um, so, you know, before you leave that comment, just think about how you might feel if you receive that comment and what mm. the real intention of that comment is, you know, are you just killing time in the internet and you're kind of mindlessly leaving a comment or are you actively trying to hurt someone? Because probably you're not, probably you're not actively trying to hurt someone. Cause if you, if you were, I don't think, uh, I don't think it would feel the same. I think, I don't know, people just sort of leave these comments. So on social media, you know, take a second, breathe, be kind in person. I think, you know, as we talked about with the, the outgrouping, you know, maybe you kind of do the same thing. I think it's just important to sit back and reflect on like, why do I not feel a sense of compassion for this person? Is it because like, why am I willing to be hostile and angry mm. and, and, and not express empathy? Is it because I see something different about them for me? Is it because I see them as a threat? Um, you know, I think generally empathic behaviors are kind behaviors. And so mm. if it, maybe it's contagious. Maybe if more people are are kind and generous, then others will be too. And maybe it can start a sort of chain reaction. I mean, you see this in like certain, like I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and it's called the city of good neighbors. And everyone's just really nice. You know, mm -hmm. it's a sort of continuously, like it's one of those cities where you, you go into get a coffee and you're in a drive-thru and the person in front of you just pays for yours for no reason. And so you pay for the person behind you. Or mm. I've actually had a situation where I was in my car and I was snowed in. And like three or four homeless guys came over and just pushed me out for no reason. And it's it's just sort of this generosity, this pay it forward. Um, so, you know, I think maybe it feels like a deficit to help someone else when no one's helping you. But maybe just if we all kind of put one more step into positivity and empathy, then maybe it'll be contagious and it's kind of, you know, kumbaya, but um, <laughs> maybe it'll make a difference. Well, I love that we're talking about how as individuals we can glue together groups and then ultimately have that ripple out into humanity which then leads me to reflect on a conversation i had with avi loeb who is you know astrophysicist he's at the forefront right now of the galileo project which is exploring um you know intelligent life and artifacts that he believes may have come from interstellar systems that had intelligent life and the perspective his perspective is if we realize as a humanity that there are billions of other blue planets around suns and likely as many other civilizations that have existed then maybe we can come together globally as a we and so I, I think it's the macro, right? We're talking about the individual. We're talking about the micro, right? The neural circuitry. Then we're talking about the social engagement, which is at the individual level. And then we're talking about this big thing, which is we're one species. And, and if we really truly believed or knew that there was other civilizations out there, would we still be making the comments to each other on social media? Or would we be grabbing each other's hands and saying, whoa, that's the them. 
this is yeah. the, this is the us so um what I what I love to do at the end of my podcast is just give a few kernels what I took what I'm gonna take from this and chew on and really think about so that um, you the listener can do the same thing and maybe you took your own notes I'm, I'm a note taker so here's what I'm going to really chew on um, well first I found it fascinating that all of your paths you, you called them unintentional including the impetus to to go down these paths which was a dream you're extremely driven by subconscious information it's fascinating anyway that's a total side here's the <laughs> kernels i took that i'm going to digest that empathy is the ability to recognize each other's states that um uh perception action model that when we witness the pain in others we actually have an experience of that pain um, the idea that we're really good at in-grouping and out-grouping and that we can actually do things about that to change it. Um, and that uh, we don't have to actually follow the impulse to defend ourselves uh, on social media because it doesn't really have the effect that we're looking for. And then the last thing, which I think is a great reminder for all time and all people, is pay it forward. Um, so Ben, I'm so, so lit up from this conversation. I have all these ideas. I'm probably gonna have to have you back and talk about them, um, especially after some of the current research you're doing is out there so that we can uh, get another glimpse. But I so appreciate the time you took today. Absolutely, yeah, I really appreciate you having me. And this was, this was genuinely fun. I really enjoyed your questions. Awesome. How can people get more of you? Um, so probably the hub is just go to my website. It's just benrein.com, B-E-N-R-E-I-N.com. And there's everything. You can download my PDFs of my papers if you are so inclined. Um, no paywalls. They're just PDFs. Hopefully I don't get in trouble from the publishers. Um, <laughs> there's you, know, you can access my social media platforms. Uh, I think my CV might be on there if you're interested. Everything is a message box. Um, that's probably the way to go. So, And I thank Excellent. you for your interest. Excellent. I think everyone needs to look at your Instagram channel and your TikTok channel because your videos are great. So thank you again. And we will do this again soon. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to Unlock Hope. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're at Neurosculpting Institute on Facebook, at Neurosculpting on Instagram. You can always reach out to us on our website, neurosculpting.com, and you can download our app, Neuropraxis. Stay well, everybody.